0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: Joining us, Nick Redfern. Now he's uh, everybody should know him. Um, written over thirty books now, uh, just in fascinating area. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Hello. Oh,
0: well, thanks
2: for having me on the show.
1: Yeah. Oh. It's our pleasure. <laughs> uh, oh, that was, you know, um, just just on, on yourself there, I was standing, so you've written 30 books now, I believe, right?
2: Yeah, that's all, I think it's about 32 or 3 published, and there's sort of 3 or 4 always in the works, you know. But uh, it goes back 25 years. It's not like, uh, you know, I've been putting out uh, 5 or 6 a year or anything like that, although I've had a few out this year. Yeah. But generally, it's for about two books a year, something like that. That's
1: still that's still a lot of um, that is a lot of yeah. work,
0: you know. Yeah, well, sort of six
2: months, I guess sort of a six month period really It's not a bad amount of time. Particularly if you've got all the information and the research done, and you know it's then just a case of actually writing the book, so to speak. Um, that does sort of make it a lot easier. And I try and sort of remain as um, sort of focused as I can. You know, I mean, although it's a passion i when i 'm writing, I like to sort of keep it essentially it's like job hours. I start sort of seven thirty in the morning answering emails doing facebook etc and then i I typically write the books eight to five uh, Monday to Fridays. So I like to take evenings off and take weekends off to you know I think it 's important to have um A life away from the subject and downtime and right. you know just a normal life as well you know oh, as the,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> as all the craziness so oh, uh, right, and I think yeah. it sort of keeps your mind from getting frazzled, but when you 're not specifically not doing it you know twenty four seven so um I always huh. find that by sort of structuring it where I sort of do um you know, regular eight to five Monday to friday for me not for everybody, but for me, that approach works in terms of being able to apply itself and just getting down to it you know for sort of four months or whatever so,
1: so you're very disciplined at what you do then you know you're very special uh,
2: well i am and the main reason being that i think it's like any self-employed job you know as i said it is a passion for me but it's also it's also my job is you know full-time as a writer and it's but it's like any self-employed job If you know you can some people might say, Oh well you can sleep until noon and just you know, yeah. potter around and do a few hours here <laughs> and there. It doesn't work like that. You know, you have to be sort of on the ball on target and just make sure you don't um you know, miss deadlines and that kind of thing and just uh, because things it's like any self employed job, you know, you don't get the work done, um you fall behind and you fall behind and then sort of a disaster happens, you know.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and uh, now, I also take it from from my understanding is you you actually go out um, and get the research in person, so you're not just sitting on the internet and gathering things. Uh, you actually no, go
2: out. No, I yeah, I prefer to do field research, whether it's UFOs, Bigfoots, Loch Ness monster, Chupacabra, you name it. And the main reason being is that you know, I mean, it's you know, it's good that you mentioned the internet because the internet is a good resource tool for background information but what the internet doesn't sort of necessarily provide you with is first hand, you know, case files where in other words, when I've, for example, I've been on a lot of expeditions to Puerto Rico looking for the chupacabra and while I've been out there, this is sort of across 2004 to 2014 um, I've interviewed literally dozens and dozens of people from Puerto Rico who've seen the chupacabra but have never, ever, you know, put their stories on the internet. They were happy to share the reports privately, but they just didn't want to be bothered by everybody and his brother turning up, you know, harassing them or whatever, (laughs) um, or just bothering them. So, in other words, when you go out to these locations, you know, you hang out with the local people, and they realise you're doing this research for valid reasons, you kind of, you know, you gain their trust and vice versa, then they open up, but... The internet isn't necessarily always good about or able to do that. You know, you can get background articles on the cabra in Puerto Rico, but that's a far cry away from sitting in somebody's front room in a little village in the El Yonke rainforest, that kind of thing. So that's why I do as much personal research as I can. I try to take sort of a journalistic approach of following the facts and the witness testimony, even though I'm dealing with strange and unusual topics.
1: Yeah, yeah, but that comes across because in your writings, then uh, people get the essence. They feel, uh, they feel that in in the writing. Um, I, I can tell authors, and and I, you know, being in the more in the media side, but I can tell people that have just done their research on Google. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's just well, no, yeah, you, right? <laughs> they're missing things, and they don't have the feel. They don't have the expression. They don't have the. The passion about something, and you can tell when you read, you know what I mean. So it's coming yeah. across that way, and I think that's great. You, you, you know, you should be very proud of yourself because.
2: There's oh, so, oh well, thank you. Well, well, I mean, what I try to do, Al, for the most part, is if it's like expedition based, you know, if the book is based around an expedition, I actually write it up as as the expedition occurred. In other words, I write it up sort of road trip slash diary format, you know. Literally along the lines of it was a dark and stormy night, you know, and I jumped in the jumped in the jeep, spun the wheels, and headed off into the darkness looking for the cabra That's how I sort of write those books. So, uh.
1: but that's great. I mean, I, I think so. I think I, that that's that's what I look for myself in an author in in writing, and that's what keeps me reading. So, oh cool. So I think that's great. Uh, I'm, more, I'm, I'm glad you do that. Uh, there's so many that don't. <laughs> now I uh, I had a lot of interest. You cover so many areas that I think are fascinating. And um and now you were you now you were talking about the uh and uh how how did now that's not a very old um s- subject I would say isn't that only like about 20 years or 30 years? Well actually
2: Funnily enough, it's 20 years this very year that the the term chupacabra was first used. That was was in the summer of 1995 when the whole thing really began with reports of attacks on farm animals, livestock, etc., on um, a number of Puerto Rican small ranches and little farms. And the term chupacabra is a Spanish term. It means goat sucker. And the reason it was given the name was because a lot of the animals that were attacked were were small goats, like young goats, that kind of thing. And reportedly there were two um, puncture wounds on the neck and sometimes another puncture wound on the stomach. And in the initial wave of attacks, although the animals were found dead, nobody had seen the predator itself. But that changed shortly afterwards when a number of people saw this thing that they described as a... having a body not unlike a chimpanzee in size and build and speed etc but it was hairless and it seemed to have like a a row of spikes down its head and sort of like a reptilian colour to its skin there were a few odd reports, uh, unusual reports, where people said that it had large bat-like wings which gave it almost like a gargoyle kind of imagery and uh, it literally plunged the people of Puerto Rico into sort of state and hysteria for for several months, and you know, with major media coverage. But uh, so I followed it from when it all began. But the fir- first time I got uh, the opportunity to go to Puerto Rico was in 2004, and that was with a, a team from a, a sci-fi channel show that was around back then called Proof Positive. And we spent about uh, eight, nine, ten days, something like that, out on Puerto Rico. Was travelling around with a translator and a film crew, and interviewing as many people we could about the Chupacabra. Hmm.
1: So, when you were interviewing people, first of all, how were they? Were they very receptive, and did they, or were they kind of scared to talk about it?
2: Um, Well, the fortunate thing was that the because it was with a TV channel, the Sci Fi Channel um, had had contracted uh, a woman. on the island, Carola, who could speak English and speak Spanish and so she was sort of a very good researcher, done a lot of TV work and things like this and she actually was the person who tracked down all the various people for us to interview and we got sort of background data and um, so we're able to go sort of day by day and interview two or three people at different locations every day and we got a really sort of good solid body of varied material, for example um, uh, in one of the very first interviews we did with a rancher named Nael and he told us how he bred chickens and he got chickens um, in cages in the sort of backyard area of of his ranch when I say ranch you know it's not like huge ranch over here a lot of the people unfortunately are quite poor so his, his farm area if you like was sort of a About a 70 or 80 square foot area of his backyard that kind of thing Uh, But he told us how he'd woken up one morning to find all the cages sort of uh, Opened but obviously with something that had strength because some of the cages were bent Um, And they were all dead inside the cages now What was weird is that the the area where they were kept backed onto his, his back door? Um, you would imagine in the middle of the night if all, with all these attacks going on that the, you know, the chickens would have been making a lot of noise and would have woken up, never mind just him, but the whole neighborhood in this right. little village in the rainforest. But that didn't happen. It was only when he woke up the next morning and found them all dead with these odd puncture wounds. So that was the very first case that sort of really plunged us into the heart of the mystery, if you like. Right.
1: Yeah, that would be quite odd, I would think.
2: Mm. <laughs> Everything about that case was odd. You know, the, the puncture wounds, the reported uh, the re- reports and rumours of blood loss from the animals. I mean, the animals hadn't been touched like eaten or partially eaten. It was just the wounds and they were left dead. That was kind of odd because, you know, I mean, if it was a predator attacking uh, from somewhere like Puerto Rico, you know, it's going to need a a regular food supply, particularly in the in the rainforest, you know, it's not like, say, just a wild dog, you know, wildly attacking, you know, a few sheep in a field or whatever, goats in a field, you know, this, typically on Puerto Rico, predators, so to speak, are, are looking for food, they're not just looking to kill an animal and leave it there. But uh, wow. unfortunately, we weren't able to um, do an, or get somebody to do an autopsy of the chickens because this was a couple of years earlier. Had that happened, we might have been able to tell if there was this reported significant blood loss through the wounds um, or not, you know. But it, that certainly quickly became like a staple part of the mystery, like a, a vampire-type angle to it. Yeah. Well, so,
0: well...
1: Now now, putting that all together um, what what did you sort of think this was when you first came in and and, and you're in a small uh, ranch seventy by eighty, and um, all these animals were killed overnight, yeah. and nobody heard anything um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so what was your first thought?
2: Well, my first thought was probably a correct thought that I've been sort of you know, um, thrown into this bizarre and surreal world that was that was even more bizarre and surreal than things I've been doing for the last 10 years, <laughs> never mind just that week, you know. Yeah. Um, and, but the, the interesting thing was that Nael came across very, very lucid, you know, credible down to earth and just wanted answers to what had happened because, you know, they said he wasn't a rich guy. And... It was his livelihood. You know, that he wasn't so much interested in telling his story for the sake of telling it. He was more concerned at the time, you know, of um, just, you know, his family's livelihood, putting food on the table. And um, so, in other words, he was looking at, at it from that angle. Uh, I guess from, from my angle, I was trying to figure out what co- kind of animal has the ability to be so stealthy that, you know, it can kill one chicken after another, you know, systematically, without the others even knowing it before the creatures upon them. You know, there's nothing really that I could think of indigenous on Puerto Rico that could do that. I mean, although, you know, it's, it's not that big an island, but, but it is a big island, and it has this huge rainforest, the old Yankee rainforest, and, you know, if you didn't know where you were, you would, and you got parachuted in, you would think you were in the middle of you know, the South American jungle or the African jungles. It's like a huge, you know, massive jungle, forested area. However, the big difference between Puerto Rico and, say, Africa or South America is there are no, no large predators on Puerto Rico. There's nothing like big cats, um, you know, bears, nothing at all. Um, the the largest animals on Puerto Rico are the imported ones, like pigs, cows, you know, cattle, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that there really isn't anything that would have the ability to sort of race around the, you know, the island of Puerto Rico, slaughtering animals, draining blood or not, you know, but just, just attacking and killing animals, so whatever the animal is, it's either something that suddenly was new to Puerto Rico, or it was something that had been so stealthy for so long, but it, it took until 1995 for people to realize that there was actually something there.
1: Yeah, and so, and also, what was its motive? Like, what was its purpose? So, yeah. you know, if it's uh, if it's not eating the the chickens, mm-hmm. you you know, you kill them all in one night. You're not eating them or feeding them to your young. Uh, wh- what is the purpose? There, it, it they're, you know, you do things for a reason. So, yeah. Um. Or, now, did they lose all their blood? Like all those chickens, for instance.
2: Well, that's a good question. The, the whole issue of the blood draining you know, or blood sucking, blood drinking, etc., is a very controversial one because, as I said, with the, with the ranchers, arena, a lot of them being very poor, you know, for the most part, we, solving the puzzle of what the Chupacabra is really isn't at the forefront of their minds. You know, the, so they're just interested in putting food on the table for their family, etc. So, in other words, very rarely have the ranchers even bother to keep the animals you know we're talking about an environment where in the summer the temperature gets up to you know the the low hundreds and so for that reason they just don't leave these corpses laying around and rotting and you know stinking out the environment so they get rid of them in other words you know that Mm. if it was me it'd be a different perspective you know i'd keep it and try and get it you know analyzed or autopsied by a veterinarian But, of course, you can't do that when you live in a little town in, you know, Puerto Rico. Again, through no fault of the the people, you know, that's just their environments and and life, etc. So, in other words, um, in terms of trying to figure out what the motivation is, you know, if they're not eating the creatures, then to systematically take time just to kill them doesn't really make sense. So this is why this scenario of the blood-drinking, in part at least, came forward. Because a number of witnesses did say they saw, you know, obviously the two fang marks was one of the reasons why the, the blood-drinking angle came forward. Another one was that a number of witnesses um, did actually say they saw the creature not so much licking Excuse me, not sort of sucking the blood, but almost lapping it, if you like, like a, you know, a cat lapping mm. milk out of a saucer, right. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but these stories are quite controversial, and although I've, I point out in the book I've done on this called Chupacabra Road Trip, I point out that although I've heard these blood-drinking and blood-sucking stories many times, so far, I've never been able to prove that you know, blood-sucking actually did go on. But certainly the stories sort of proliferate all across the island.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of, I guess that's where the name came from. I, uh, yes,
2: exactly. Yeah. Uh,
1: now, now, as it went on, as your trip went on, you, you ran across someone that actually had a face-to-face run-in with the creature.
2: Yeah, but this is actually, I think this is the third day we're on the island. This is a woman named Norca. Now, what's interesting is that I mentioned how the term chupacabra was created in 1995. Um, and people often ask me, uh, and quite justifiably, why is it that it only began in 1995? Well, there are some reports that sound, with hindsight, like chupacabra attacks that occurred many years earlier. For example, in the 1980s, there were reports of a creature that became known as the devil bird and this creature reportedly uh, attacked uh, animals in a very similar fashion to the Chupacabra but it died away very quickly so it was forgotten and the same thing happened in 1975 with a creature known as the um, Mocha Vampire Mocha is an area on Puerto Rico and um, that acted in a very similar fashion to the um, whole um, devil bird and and the uh, Chupacabra scenario in the 1990s so in other words, we have this sort of very weird situation of animal attacks going on decades ago, long before the term chubacabra was created, but with hindsight could have been the same creature. And this sort of leads into Norca's story, this woman we interviewed. And Norka had an encounter in 1975, interestingly enough, at the same year that this so-called mocha vampire was on the loose. And she described how, well, she actually lived in a huge house in the Al rainforest, high in the rainforest. And to sort of access it, you have to go around this winding road that cuts all through the rainforest to a very high height. And she still lived at that house, and that's where we uh, did the interview. And um, Norca told us how she was driving home. It was sort of dusk, so it wasn't dark, but, you know, the sun was starting to set and it was starting to go dark. And as she was sort of driving slowly, which is the only way you can really do it in that area because the roads are so twisting and winding, she saw this creature or this thing surface on the right-hand side of the road. And she was only doing about 15 miles an hour, so she was easily able to slow down before she got too close to it. And she said it was about five feet high, and it almost looked like it got a a, a cloak over its head and shoulders, and it was shuffling uh, slowly from the right to the left. And she said she couldn't figure out what it was, you know, almost like a little old person shuffling across the road, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, she said that she just sat there and watched it, kind of puzzled, but then she got terrified when it turned towards her. And she saw these sort of bright red fiery eyes, and suddenly what she assumed was a cloak actually opened up into two very large, bat like wings. Um, and it didn't take to the skies or anything like that, but she felt possibly with hindsight that it opened its wings as like a form of intimidation. Um, You know, some birds will do that, you know, they'll open the wings, they're brightly coloured, and it's like a sign. um, Often, you know, like the males of the species do it to each other when they're in the mating season to try and, you know, frighten off the other male birds. So she, she pondered on that and just sat there sort of frozen with fear, and this thing... Looked at her for about five or six seconds, then folded its wings back up and and vanished to the other side of the you know the thick, dense um, rainforest environment. And um, she told us that she did remember that there were some animal attacks in the area, in that same period. Now, what she described actually sounds something like a a giant a, you know a giant bat of some sort. Right. Um, there are a lot of stories of you know, very large bats that haven't been, you know, obviously officially confirmed. But something, imagine something along the lines of a vampire bat, but with a body sort of, you know, five feet in length and wingspans of about 15 feet. You know, although we don't have a specimen of one of those in a zoo or, or anywhere, there have been a lot of reports of creatures like that. So, I, you know, that's why one of the theories that's developed is the possibility or the theory that's could the chupacabras, the devil birds, the mocha vampire? Could they be some sort of huge mutant type of a vampire bat? And certainly, that you know, in the fossil record, we do see evidence of um, large bats that did exist in the distant past. So it's not impossible, and you know, it's it's an interesting little theory.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so when you um, go on these interviews and you're traveling around the land and in in a place like. Puerto Rico for instance and so you're actually in the vehicle in the country and you're going around and you're getting a lot of these stories told to you and they're quite believable and quite you know they're 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 quite real how does that make you feel um, doing your interviews do you feel like um, a little intimidated or a little bit nervous or anxious
2: uh, no, that's not sort of my character. I mean, when I get out into the field, for me, it's more like sort of an adrenaline rush. It's excitement, and I want to, you know, try and solve the mystery. Um, you know, I'm one of these who I'm happy about asking questions, knocking on doors, and, you know, just... I mean, what we did a couple of times was just sort of walk into... in one of these little villages, was sort of walk into the local bar or the store and say, Hey, you know does anybody have any chupacabra stories? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, just come straight to the point be forthright about it. But, um, you know, I, so I, I don't sort of get frightened or worried or anything like that, but I, I sort of find it more exciting, and, you know, I feel driven to look for the answers, and the more data you get, the more it sort of pushes me on, and um, and I think that's that's the, the best way to do it. If we're going to get answers. There's no point being sort of like at a... An apologist for it, you know, or or taking the oh, would you mind, you know, uh, telling me this, et cetera. You know, I, I put it how it is to people, you know, I'm here and if you can help me, I'd be very much appreciative, you know. Um, so I, I try and, you know, take the approach of, well, this is like a journalistic story and like any journalistic story, you've got to get a foot in the door and you've got to pursue it to the. the best degree that you can
0: Yeah,
1: yeah and now the um, was there a lot of people that had seen and give you descriptions of the actual creature that was doing this?
2: Yeah, most of I think altogether over the the 11 years that I've been to Puerto Rico on many expeditions I've probably now got somewhere in the region, I would say 30 or 40 witness reports and the vast majority of them, apart from literally like one, two, three, four, something like that, talk about a creature that apparently has the ability to move on two limbs and four limbs. You know, I mean, there are a few animals, known animals that will do that, like, for example, the, the baboon. You know, they can skillfully do that. And a bear will stand up on its hind legs, obviously, but their main you know, form of walking is on four limbs. Um, but the, the creature of Puerto Rico is predominantly described as having, you know, a, a, a sort of total um, control when it's sort of walking and running on two limbs or four limbs. It's sort of, you know, adept at both. Um, I would say a good 50 or 60 percent of the reports describe like a, a row of spikes down its head and down the back of its neck. Um, which kind of gives like a, an image of sort of a punk rock mohawk or something like that, <laughs> as uh, how one of the witnesses actually described it. Um, and I would probably say 7 or 8% of the people, something like that, a very small percentage, talk about the wings. Now, admittedly, um, some of the witnesses said that they didn't see wings until the thing actually opened its wings. So, you know, that that's an important thing that. There could have been more sort of wing-based reports had the people not just seen the creature fleetingly and possibly just from the front, you know, if they'd seen it from behind, it might have been a different story. But um, the other important thing to remember, of course, is although, you know, obviously the, the ranchers tend to find their animals attacked when they get up in the morning, most of the attacks occur during the night and most of the sightings occur late at night. So, in other words, when you're in an environment where... You know, here in the U.S., we're we're bombarded by light pollution. In Puerto Rico, you get outside of the main city of San Juan. When you're out, you know, in the little towns and villages, there aren't any street lights for the most part. It's very very dark. You know, the only illumination is from the from the homes. Um, so, and when you're getting out into the real countryside, I mean, it's sort of pitch black. So, for the witnesses, that can make it doubly difficult to get a a full positive description when they might have a fleeting view of it for say 5 or 10 seconds in an area where the only illumination is perhaps from their car headlamps or if they've got a flashlight you know there's no huge street signs street lamps that kind of thing so it's very in that sense it can be challenging for the witness to actually have a full understanding of what they're seeing
1: Hmm. so now have there been any humans that have been uh, attacked or had hmm. their blood sucked
2: <laughs> well you know that, that's an, an interesting uh, question and I'll tell you why Why it is so interesting is because every time I've been to Puerto Rico I've heard these stories of um, chupacabra attacks on people there literally has not been a time when I haven't been to Puerto Rico that I haven't heard these stories um, but I have to admit that the, these have been the most difficult ones to chase down um, and as as far as i've got with these stories is where you know somebody has said well i got it from this person and they got it from that person you know sort of friend of a friend stories right. uh, Now that you know as i've always when i've ever been asked this question i always point out that it doesn't necessarily mean that the stories are just like an urban legend or, or folklore but I, what i do think is that if there have been human attacks and human killings that would be without doubt the one area that, you know, the local authorities on the island would want to keep under wraps. So it doesn't surprise me that so many of these stories are reportedly shrouded in secrecy. I mean, there are accounts of you know, people who know of this particular angle supposedly being warned and threatened not to talk about them, which, again, you know, has a, sort of a degree of urban legend about it. But on the other hand, as I said, it would make sense that, the very last thing you would want to admit to was, you know, this creature has now turned its attentions to people because that really would whip up the um, hysteria to, you know, just a, a frenzied level across the entire island. So uh, I, I do take a lot of interest in these human attacks and, and I've heard a lot of reports very similar, like puncture wounds on the neck and, you know, somebody stumbled across the body looking very, very pale and, um, then the authorities come in, you know, the police come in, and then a higher entity, if you like, um, takes over and you know, takes control of the whole situation, shuts the people up, and, and it actually goes out of the police's hands. So, you know, it's not impossible, I think, that there could be something to these stories.
1: And, and what's, what's the, uh, the rumors about the military taking and capturing some of them and uh, taking them to the mainland?
2: Yeah. Uh, Actually, something that again I've heard um, several times. It relates to a military base on the island of Puerto Rico which is now shut down called Roosevelt Roads. Uh, Roosevelt Roads, excuse me. And um, it was actually a, a US naval base, you know, sort of like it was actually the largest um, US naval base in the area and um, a huge place. Um, but it closed down in 2004. Now, I'm sure everybody sort of heard. A lot of people have heard, I should say, these stories about the U.S. government having sort of dead alien bodies, you know, in <laughs> yeah. bunkers and hangars where they're sort of cryogenically preserved, you know, recovered from UFO crashes 30, 40, 50 years ago. And they have people come in now and again to autopsy them and study them and try and figure out what they are. Well, there's kind of similar stories to that with the Chupacabra in Puerto Rico. Um, I've, over the years, I've probably got four, five, six stories, something like that, of... People claim to know that the U.S. military from Roosevelt Roads um, reportedly were able to capture some pretty vicious living chupacabras and also kill some others, and that they were reportedly um, flown in sort of um, like steel cages, placed in steel, sedated the ones that weren't dead, and placed in steel cages. Transferred to the U.S. and then, you know, for some destination unknown, but some sort of military installation, uh, you know, something along like the lines of Area 51, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and the stories were quite detailed about how the living ones, you know, the the military apparently knew where they had their sort of lair, which was a particular cave system. And and it, what's interesting is that Puerto Rico has a vast a massive number of caves, caverns and, and, and cave networks that sort of go not just along the island but deep underground and, and some of these cave systems are actually out of bounds to the general public interestingly enough this is down to the you know the Puerto Rican government they they literally you know it's against the law to go into some of these caves which sort of adds to the conspiracy as well um... And, you know, I'm, that's actually not here, so that, that's fact. You know, there are signs that say, you know, access to these particular caves is forbidden by, you know, the law of Puerto Rico. Mm. Um, so one of the stories is about you know, a number of these chupacabras being tracked to one of these specific caves. Some of them were reportedly killed as I said others were, um, you know, essentially knocked out, you know, uh, and then taken to the U.S. for study. Um, the stories have been sort of quite detailed, and have just come from you know, regular villagers who lived in those areas and said, "Yeah, we heard about the, you know, the guys at Roosevelt Roads getting their hands on these bodies, and um, people who, who knew of the site being told not to talk about this, and etc. Cetera, etc." Cetera. So again, it's sort of a fascinating part of the picture. But again, I think that if there's truth to it, it's not, it's not surprising that it would have been so sort of state in secrecy and steps would have been taken to ensure that you know, nothing really surfaced out of, you know, official quarters.
1: Yeah. Now, do you sort of associate this creature um, with the, the things known as Dogman and things like that on the mainland, more so?
2: Well, you know, I mean, but all of these creatures, whether it's sort of Bigfoot,
0: we at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scam influencers and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step by step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member only content and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal.
2: Unexplained monster, triple cap, They're Collectively, all known as cryptids, and they, the name comes from the subject of cryptozoology. Cryptozoology being the study of unknown animals or unacknowledged animals. Um, but in terms of you know associations and connections, um, the the one Similarity that, the main similarity that we have between the chupacabra and the so-called dogman is this ability to sort of run and walk on two legs and four. You know, the, the dogman, it, it sort of provokes imagery of werewolves. And whenever you mention werewolves, you know, you have this picture in your mind of somebody bursting out of the clothes on a full moon. <laughs> and change it into this, like, you know, killer werewolf, which can only be stopped with, like, the silver bullets or whatever. But what's interesting is if you look at a lot of the reports that people like, particularly Linda Godfrey, who more than anybody else has done, you know, a massive amount of research and written, I think, five or six books now on this topic, Linda hardly has a case of somebody claiming to, you know, literally morphed and transformed, you know, from human form into a well. Most of the reports, although they have like a werewolf quality to them, they actually don't involve, you know, this traditional image of shape-shifting, as it's called, you know, and, yeah. uh, and transforming from one creature to another, human to wolf or a wolf-like animal. Most of the reports Linda has are of creatures that seem to be wolf-like, but, as I said, can move on two limbs and four. And that is very similar to the Puerto Rican Chupacabra, but... That's pretty much where the similarities end. You know, the um, there are a lot of reports of the dogmen, um, you know, sort of scavenging food and things like that, and you know, carcasses and etc. Whereas the, the Puerto Rican creature, it just seems to kill the animals, unless it really is for sort of the, the blood aspect. Um, and a lot of the reports Linda has got, there's, there's a lot of sort of paranormal associations with them as well, sort of being seen in the vicinity of ancient mounds or cemeteries and, you know, things like this. And um, whereas the Puerto Rican Chupacabra is more, you know, it's just seen where you'd expect it to be seen in the, in the rainforest. So, but, you know, there are, I so said, there is that interesting parallel of, you know, two legs to four legs, I just sort of
1: and 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 how do you answer? This is a question that comes up with all creatures. Um, how do you answer that there's no bodies?
2: Well, you know that that's a, a, an extremely good question. It's one I get all the time. Now, the one answer which has a degree of plausibility to it, but it cannot obviously explain any everything, is the, the notion that, or not the notion, but the fact that you know when something dies in the woods. The, the local animals don't just let it lay there, you know. Um, nature has a way of, of getting rid of these things, and, you know, it's called the other <laughs> the other animals in the forest, <laughs> you know. It doesn't take long. You say, for example, a bear dies in the woods um, before, you know, other animals move in, and it's dinner and breakfast and lunch for the next few days. Yeah. And, um, you know, they pick the bones clean, and... Um, They may sort of the bones may get tossed around here and there as they're eating them, or they're competing with other animals for the for the body as well. So that could certainly explain a large number of reports as why we don't have a body of a bigfoot, for example. Um, Now, the other theories that have been put forward um, are they offer an explanation, but they do so by. I guess offering even bigger layers of mystery because you have the idea that Bigfoot is sort of a paranormal creature, like a you know a spirit guardian of the woods, that kind of thing, rather than a physical, flesh and blood animal. You know, and if it was something like that, that of course then requires us to explain well, what is a spirit guardian of the woods, and how does that exist? You know, mm. and so that would explain why we would find the bones of that, but it requires us to obviously present a case for how something like a, like a spirit monster that could exist um, then you have sort of the more intriguing theories that what if Bigfoot isn't just an unknown ape but is a highly evolved creature that looks primitive but actually isn't, that being the case you know, suggestions have been made that they have sort of burial rights even um, you know, we actually think that we're the only ones that sort of mourn and you know, bury well we, we aren't really the only ones that bury our dead However, um, when in the with elephants, for example, when one of the you know the herd dies, they mourn quite like we do, and you can find examples online where, for example, somebody, you know, is out filming and where an an, an, an elephant's just recently died, and the other members of the group, they place like twigs and and small branches over the body of the, ele- of the elephant. You know, they're not really burying it, but it's like they're giving some sort of um, you know, pay, paying homage to it and covering it up and, um, you know, um, rec- understanding, you know, what death is. Mm. And, and they mourn a lot. So, you know, in other words, possibly Bigfoot does that as well. Now, the only downside I have with all this is that even I find it difficult to believe that we could never get a body. You know, I could understand how 90% of the time... Um, if these things do bury their dead that we wouldn't find them and perhaps then that would leave another five percent, you know, would get eaten by scavengers or whatever. But for us to never get a body is troubling, you know. I mean even I have to admit that, you know, I don't I, I, I don't come up come out and say, you oh there's explanations for all this. There actually isn't, you know, that uh, that is one of the big problems and um, that's why I'm sort of open minded on what Bigfoot is, you know, is it just an ape or is there something paranormal about this, you know, that, that takes it away from being a regular physical animal, even one that we don't know what it is. You know, all we can kind of do is to try and build up more data and hopefully one day we'll have enough data to explain, you know, why Bigfoot and a lot of these other things are so elusive.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I just, I just talked to another author that uh, talked. Um, he was saying how uh, it was a time slip, you know, and portals. Yeah. That thought, yeah. where they could kind of come in and out, and
2: uh, mm-hmm. you know, well, that's an interesting theory. I mean, for example, quantum physics today is allowing for the existence of multi dimensions. I mean, probably the best way to describe it in simple terms is: you know, you're driving the car and you have got the radio on. You don't like the song that's playing, so you tune into another show, and you don't like that song, so you tune into another and another, so you find one you like. And in other words, you have all these stations, all these shows, all these channels going on at the same time, but you can only be tuned into one at any given moment. And that's how, you know, the the simple explanation for what quantum physics is allowing for, multi-dimensions all going on at the same time, but you can only be, you know, you can only access one at any given moment. And if these things you know, have an understanding of what we might call portals, or as John Keel, who wrote the Mothman Prophecy book, called them window areas, where, you know, something could come in and out of our reality, and they knew how to do it, but we don't. That might explain this sort of overwhelming elusiveness.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I just know that I have 200 channels, and I can never find anything. (laughs) 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 Just keep on going. Uh, now, yeah. now on, is, this, is this an ongoing... Now, is it still happening in Puerto Rico or are they still having these issues? Some well, animals being killed?
2: Yeah. And... Well, that's a good question because every time I've been to Puerto Rico, I've got new reports. But the reason I've got them is because I've been out there and I've took the time and energy to track people down and find them and interview them and then they may have referred me to somebody else. So, in other words, reports are going on but it, we only know about them because people actually go going looking for them. In other words, if people don't go looking for them, it's not like back in 95 when there was all the hysteria. It's not today. People aren't just coming forward and saying, oh, you know, I saw this creature because all the hysteria has died down. So in other words, from the outside, it looks like there's not much going on because not much is being reported on the internet. And, and Well, if it's not on the internet, it can't be real. You
0: know?
2: yeah. <laughs> so that's the situation. Yeah. You know, if it's not on the internet, the internet says it's not going on, it's not going on. Yeah. Um, however, it's very different, as I said, when you get back out there and you gain the trust of the people, and they'll say, well, you know, I, there is a guy you could speak to who had an encounter sort of four years ago or two years ago. Um, but again, I would not have known about that. I had not gone. So... You know, the sceptics often say, well, it was just mass hysteria because nobody else reports them. And then so I say to those same sceptics, well, have you been out and actually looked to see if there are any reports in the last couple of years? Like, well, no. (laughs) You know, so um, that's (laughs) what we're up against. It's it's all very well to say nothing's going on. But if the people haven't bothered to look and actually go out there to see if anything's going on, you're going to get a distorted image. And that distortion does suggest that, you know, it's died off, but it actually hasn't.
1: Yeah, but wouldn't the creature get a Twitter and Facebook page? And
2: <laughs> oh well, <laughs> you know there are active pages, you know, dedicated to the. You know the the monster of this particular lake or the creature <laughs> of those woods. You know, you can find them all over the place. You know, a lot of them are really good because they do offer like a lot of tourist information and hot spots, that kind of thing. So you know, they they actually do as well as the entertainment angle. They they do actually present, you know, a useful resource tool for yeah. you know, everything from like you know the, the local motels to check into and the hot spots where the you know, the lake monsters are predominantly seen in this part of the water, you know, versus yeah. this side of the lake or whatever. You know, they're seen more in the deeper areas. And uh, so, you know, I think that's all sort of good, you know. And a lot of it seems it's is at the same base. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that if it's, no. you know, we understand it for what it is. Um, and we can apply, you know, a lot of that to the legitimate investigations as, as well. And so uh, I think all of the data collectively sort of helps the, the search, if you
1: know. Yeah, I just think it would be great if, if one of these uh, creatures like Bigfoot had his own <laughs> real page. They came out of the closet. <laughs> and and there. Well, who
2: knows? I mean, stranger things have happened, I guess. Uh, <laughs>
1: and they they start doing selfies and take pictures of their lunch. <laughs> and they take pictures of their lunch. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah,
1: like sort of uh, with a deer over its shoulder yeah. or something. Like that. <laughs> oh, uh, it's just silly.
2: Topped uh, off with like a bit of mayonnaise and some pickles.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think so.
0: I, I would love <laughs> that.
1: Uh, you know, um, so what's your overall opinion of, of, of the whole creature, uh, cryptozoology mm. sort of as You do spend so much time researching yeah. that. Um,
2: well... I mean, my personal view is I think there's two things going on. I think we have legitimately unknown animals. Well, actually, there's several things going on. We have legitimately totally unknown animals like the chupacabra and um, other ones, somewhat obscure ones, like the Mongolian death worm, which is like this five-foot-long worm that can apparently lives under the sands and can electrocute people, not unlike an electric eel does in the oceans. There's actually a lot of good data to suggest that exists. And... Um, on the island of Sumatra, there's this small ape-like creature that walks completely upright, upright like a human, known as the Oran And I actually think the, all these are real animals that we're going to find in probably in the near future. There's a lot of really good stuff on the um, Oran pendek. I really do think that will be found soon. Um, and they're, for me at least, they're unknown animals. Now, there are other creatures which could potentially be surviving relics from, you know, periods long gone, which, you know, we're told they have become extinct, and they actually didn't. Uh, for example, a classic example is the coelacanth, a large fish, which was presumed until the 1930s to um, have been extinct for millions of years, and then one was caught off the coast of South Africa in 1935. And since then, there have been other examples where today they're mostly they're not captured because they're so scarce, they're just filmed. But, you know, they were around millions of years ago, and they survived quite nicely. It's not like they were small little fish. They were, like, 9 to 10 feet long, and they still are. Um, But they survived detection for millions of years. So I think we could be dealing with a few things like that. Possibly that might explain some of these giant bat reports, possibly some sea serpent reports. You know, they could have been marine reptiles, possibly from, you know, the Jurassic era, things like plesiosaurs, which, again, you know... We know they died out, but there could have been others that survived. Then there's this other more controversial character, uh, category we just touched on, the idea of some of them being more paranormal-based. And um, and I don't rule this out, not just because of the weird nature of these things, like the dogman, but the fact that they're seen time and again in areas that are sort of traditionally tied to paranormal phenomena, like graveyards and uh, um, like in Britain, like ancient stone circles, we get a lot of reports of weird creatures, like so-called black panthers or alien big cats, as they're known in the UK, ABCs. But they're so often seen, you know, they're said around graveyards, around stone circles, and and they have a lot. Some of these reports have sort of supernatural qualities attached to them. So I think I think the field of cryptozoology, you know, should be sort of split into several categories, extinct versus not extinct, unknown animals, and creatures that are so bizarre that, you know, they do have sort of these sort of supernatural aspects to them.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a. It still has a lot of room for research.
2: Oh, yeah. I don't think that will ever really end. I mean, you can find reports of sea serpents, in old ship's logs from, you know, the 15 and 1600s. Um, you can find stories, uh, actually from the time of Alexander the Great, um, where one of his um, armies actually described a confrontation with these uh, large, violent, ape-like animals. You know, we're talking about going back, you know, never mind centuries, but we're talking about millennia, you know, in, in, the, in the past. So I think as long as there are weird mysteries out there, people can look for them, because whether they believe them or not, everybody loves a mystery, everybody loves sort of a campfire story, or everybody loves Halloween, you don't have to be a kid to love Halloween, you know, it's sort of just that spooky, weird, fun night when, you know, the demons or the ghosts come out, etc. We all have that sort of innate, you know, interest in these things, whether we admit it or not. I think, particularly in today's world, where, you know, it's a a lot of it's sort of Internet-dominated, et cetera. I think people still like the idea of, you know, there could be places in, in the world and things living in them that we don't know about, and it sort of provokes intrigue and adventure that um, to a degree at least, you know, the Internet's taken that away. We've, particularly with young kids, you know, they don't sort of go out and play in the woods like we did and get scratched up and fall off your bike and, you know, hanging off a rope and, you know, mm-hmm. throwing in throw yourself into the river, that kind of thing. It doesn't happen that much anymore. Kids just stay indoors and, you know, text or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's a shame. But I think also we we recognize, you know, that we are inquiring animals, basically, you know. And we are all, to a degree, I think, interested in one mystery or another.
1: just put out a book, uh, The Men in Black. And Mm. that's the third in that series, Men in Black. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Any <laughs> <in> book black,
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, now, so what was the update? Like you added new things to this, and, and what 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 new information did you come up with?
2: Well, you know the, the the whole men in black mystery is one of my favorite things to write about. Now the new book is uh, men in black is the third book that I've done on this particular subject, and um, and you know when you write on a particular subject and people may have had an experience they tend to you know, contact you although they look for somebody who's written on that subject to, to share the story with to see if they get answers that's why you know i don't much do much in the way of ghost hunting not because i avoid it but it just doesn't really interest me that much so in other words i rarely ever get anyone ever contact me about ghosts but, you know obviously they look for people who do cover that area and so that sort of brings me to the men in black mystery You know, i've written extensively about the men in black and So when you write about it, people contact you. And, you know, I get literally dozens of stories per year. Now, when people think of the Men in Black, their first thought, I guess, probably is sort of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, you know, with the movie movie versions. (laughs) That's certainly for the members of the general public who aren't necessarily familiar with the Men in Black history. That certainly is their first image. And for a lot of people I know, they assume that the Men in Black mystery was... Created by Hollywood in the mid 1990s for the movies, but it's actually the other way round. The the movies were based on a comic book series, and the comic books were inspired by real life reports. And the I mean, the term "Men in Black" actually goes back to um, 1956 when a guy named uh, Grey Barker wrote a book called "They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers." And most of the book was, featured, and was focused excuse me, on a guy named Albert Bender who created the UFO research group in Bridgeport, Connecticut called the International Flying Saucer Bureau. And he, Bender created this group and, um, in 1952, and it went from strength to strength very, very quickly uh, to the point where Bender had hundreds and hundreds of subscribers all around the world, um, the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, etc., etc. And then suddenly, without warning, Bender announced that he was going to close it down. And he alluded to being visited by these three guys in black suits. Now, as I said, Gray Barker wrote this book, I Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, in 1956. And he was friends with Bender. But Bender was someone who was an unusual character and he didn't want to say too much. And um, he was heavily sort of steeped in the world of the occult. I mean, sort of like dark occult stuff you know um creating altars to try and summon up supernatural entities and all this kind of thing and um and he, and he was heavily into as i said the heart the dark side of the occult and uh, he was a big fan of like edgar Allan poe and um um hp lovecraft people like that and um bender didn't sort of deny Barker's interpretation that the Men in Black were agents of the government, and that's how that sort of scenario developed. However, as time went on, it became clear that Bender's Men in Black was something very, very different. For example, he finally came clean and said, well, he wrote his own book eventually, and he quit the subject forever. He never, ever came back. This was in '62, But his Men in Black, he described them as being sort of five feet to five, five feet tall, very skinny, their skin was almost the colour of milk, and they looked, you know, anaemic and sick, and they had um, these sort of fiery, blazing eyes. You know, that they sounded like some sort of like a supernatural vampire. And what's interesting is, if you read most of the stories, uh, the overwhelming majority of all the reports I get of the Black are just like that. They're sort of super creepy, weird-looking vampire overtones to them, where they only sort of pretty much surface at night. And very often, they, when they knock on people's front doors, they don't force their way in. They wait to be invited in, which sort of ties in with the old vampire legend that a vampire has to be invited into your home the first time it business. Um, and there are a lot of weird parallels with other phenomena with the Men in Black business. The people who, for example, you know, with the movies, the, the Men in Black have silence people who've seen UFOs. Well, I've got some cases where there was no UFO component, but the people had been dabbling with Ouija boards, and they felt with hindsight that they'd sort of opened a portal or a window area, you know, as we were talking about earlier, with why we don't find the bodies of Bigfoot. They felt they'd sort of opened a portal to allow these things in. I've got other cases where the men in black had visited people's homes, and the people after they'd left experienced violent allegedly uh, described Violent poltergeist activity in the home. So, you know, in other words, the Hoddle image of the sort of the so called men in black being secret agents is actually very far from, removed from the real reports of these sort of strange, skinny little guys in bad fitting suits. And something very bizarrely, there have been reports by people who said, you know, they look like a corpse dug it up. Um, you know, like a reanimated corpse is the only way to sort of describe them. So, uh, you know, the Hollywood angle is an entertaining and a fun one, but the real angle is so far removed and so bizarre as to be almost unbelievable. But I mean, I mean, I get cases today that are extremely similar to Albert Bend in the early 50s, where they still turn up to pain, like the old-style gangster students and um, black fedoras. Um, you know, they—they they just everything about them is just so odd.
1: Hmm. But now these guys, the Men in Black too, because on the movies, they are direct—they're made to look like they're just out for UFOs and aliens. But yeah. in real life, like the the Men in Black reports, like what you're talking about, cover a lot of other areas.
2: Well, yeah, that's actually a good point. That's oh, a very good point that most people don't realize. Um, because it, the Men in Black History become so inextricably tied to the UFO phenomenon. They think that's why this sort of secret agent or, you know, agents of some shadow group within the government is the one, you know, that, that are doing all this. But, I mean, I've got reports where, you know, not only with the, um, like, the Ouija board angle, but where people have been sort of dabbling in things like demonology um I mean, a a really creepy case I've got in the new book was where a couple of guys, uh, one of them is actually now a famous uh, voiceover guy. He does voiceover for numerous TV shows. His name's Peter Beckman. And I interviewed Peter for the book. And he told me how... um, He couldn't remember. It was either 1969 or 1970. It was one of the two. He and a friend um, were listening to the soundtrack of the movie Rosemary's Baby, which had just come out in 68. And, you know, they got the... The soundtrack on on vinyl, I think it was that, there. Um, or it may have been, you know, like a reel-to-reel thing. I'm not sure. But anyway, they were listening to the soundtrack of Rosemary's Baby, and they got to the the Black Mass track came on, and they suddenly they felt weird and sort of spaced out, and you know didn't almost in like an altered state of mind, and they saw this um, black car pull up outside the house like something, you know, again, like one of these old-style 1950s Cadillacs, you know, with the shark fin tails and just totally black. And they said they had vague memories of hearing a slow knocking on the front door and, and feeling compelled, almost as if they were being mind-controlled to open the door. And when they opened the door, there were these two strange-looking men in black, looked very, very sick and ill, the suits didn't fit them right. And they came in, and Peter told me how he remembered that was sort of grilled and questioned and interrogated and but he felt his mind was being sort of sapped if you like and um you know in, in terms that these things were trying to pull information from his mind and he had no sort of real full recollection of what happened but vague snippets but he said the timing, you know, the the whole issue of listening to this the soundtrack of this occult movie and then the Black Mass section comes on and suddenly they have this creepy encounter with these two guys with the black suits and the fedoras. You know I've got so many stories like that, and you have you have offshoots of the Men in Black, um, like for example the Shadow People or the Hat Man, which is one that's surfaced in the last few years. Which is like a shadowy form that people see in their bedrooms. They wake up. The Shadow Man and excuse me, the Hat Man and the Shadow People is pretty much sort of part of the same phenomenon where people wake up in the middle of the night sort of frozen and unable to move and they see this menacing well they see this shadowy form in the corner of the room which is very often described as menacing it sort of you know, gives off this sense of fear or creates fear but very often this shadowy silhouette is wearing like a black fedora so you know this is sort of parallels with the, the man in black as well creating sort of a very very real but weird phenomenon which as I said is you know not most people's perceptions of
1: who or what the men in black actually are. Hmm. Yeah, it just leaves a, a a lot to think about on that. I, uh, what what do you come up like? What, what what's the mo- most popular story, or the, I guess the general story that you get? That what are the men in bat, black in general trying to do?
2: Yeah, well, they again where it gets down, you know, goes down weird pathways. I mean, for example. If you or me or nuts people, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, late at night, you're watching TV at midnight or something, and you hear this slow bang on the front door, you're definitely not going to open the door without, at the very least, looking through the spy couple. And if you don't see one of your friends, you know, or your neighbours in a panic, or the police, you're probably not going to open the door, You might, but you would probably phone the police. Yes. Um, but the people who are visited by the men in black, they don't do that. It typically what happens is, you know, there's they, a they slow knock at the door and then it's as if the person's mind has been placed into an altered state like Peter Beckman where it's as if their common sense factors have gone out of the window or they've just been placed, or, I mean, almost like one described it, like coming around from anaesthetic after a surgery that, you know, your mind, you start saying stupid things until your mind begins to clear. And that's how the people feel that their mind has been placed into an altered state to where they do go to the door, they open it, and they allow these things to come in. And things is probably a good description for them. <laughs> um, and they come in, and then they, they sit down, and they start interrogating the witness about a UFO encounter or some other bizarre encounter in Bigfoot that have been visited by the men in black. And You know, as I said, the Ouija board angle. And uh, um, typically, there's, a, there's very rare. There are reports of just one, but typically it's either two or mainly three uh, men in black will turn up. Sometimes it's women in black as well, and they kind of have this pale look and emotional, less look as well. Um, and what happens is that you know they reel up these questions, and the people feel to you know they just have to spill their guts, so to speak. They they tell them everything they want to know, and one usually asks the questions and another one is usually just intently staring at the person and quite in like which is what is usually described like a very malevolent almost evil hate filled way um there are some very creepy stories where the witnesses said they felt that as they were watching or speaking to the men in black and they were watching them that these things were sort of draining them of energy one described it as how a diabetic must feel if they miss breakfast and lunch and then it's nine o'clock at night and they start to you know, they go into crash mode where, you know, their life's in danger and they the witnesses have felt sort of clammy and cold, short of breath and dizzy and lightheaded and vertigo, as if and, and weak, you know, as if they were lacking in energy. And um, they felt they were almost like a psychic vampire. So that that is sort of the typical way the witnesses react and That's how the men in black seem to take control of the whole situation by affecting the person's mind. And then what usually happens is that when they're finished, they get up and leave. The person shuts the door and sits down, and they're almost in like a daze for five or ten minutes, like I said, coming around from anaesthetic. And when they do finally return to normal, then they stand up and race to the door, thinking, why on earth did I let them in? But, of course, that ten minutes in which the person is sort of slowly coming back to normal again has given them plenty of time to leave and exit the area, which you know may explain why again, but like we've been for a lot of these other things, they're never caught because you know, they've found a way to elude us um, and get away before we have even a chance to, to go looking for them.
1: Strange strange things in the never, world. <laughs>
2: yeah. To be honest, you know, the, the Men in Black stories, the real ones, do sound you know, far less X-Files based and really like far more like the cross between like Edgar Allan Poe and HP Lovecraft, you know, that that they, if somebody wrote novels about them, the real stories, they would be placed, you know, not on the sci-fi shelf or the UFO shelf. They would be in the horror occult section.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe there, that's where we'll put them. Well, it's been a pleasure. Um, we are running out of time. So how about giving your um, information for the people that are listening?
2: Okay. Well, people can reach me. I have a blog, which is called Nick Redfern's World of Whatever, and the, uh, the address is http colon slash slash nickredfernfortian, that's F-O-R-T-E-A-N, nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. People can reach me at Facebook and Twitter. Uh, there's nine or ten Nick Redfern's at Facebook, but if you scroll down, you'll you'll find me. Um, and um, I'm always happy to chat with people. You know, if they want to share cases or if they want advice on you know something that's happened to them, and uh, uh, you know, I'm always happy to share information or try and help someone if they've had an experience that's worrying them or troubling them, or or they just want to know more about the subject. And um, Most of my books, um, you can get off the shelves in Barnes & Noble. um, Or if not, you can get them online at Amazon as well.
1: Very good. Well, thank you very much. I hope to have you back again. It's just very interesting uh, to talk to
2: you. Well, thanks, Al. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I enjoyed it. and We covered a lot of ground, a lot of different areas. The mission has been completed. The end.
1: By George, he's got it. It
2: is the end. I'll see you.
0: This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.